0: One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is The Real Story from the BBC World Service with me, Rithullah Shah. And this week, we're asking if we're at the beginning of a tech cold war.
1: The new Huawei Mate 20 Pro, faster and smarter for longer.
0: That's an advertisement from Huawei for their new mobile handset, which is going to be 5G-enabled. But there's a snag. Despite being the second biggest mobile phone maker in the world, Huawei's been blacklisted by the US as a company that might be linked to the Chinese state and therefore pose a national security risks. In other words, it might be used to spy on Americans. Among the companies which have taken action as a result of this ban are Google, which has barred Huawei from some elements and updates of its Android operating system. Huawei denies it conducts surveillance for Beijing, but the US charge has already made an impact. Our business reporter spoke to some shoppers in London who were thinking of getting a new phone.
1: So if you were looking at phones and one of them came without YouTube, you couldn't get YouTube, you would rule that out? Straight away. Straight away I'm ruling out.
0: Everything's at the tip of our fingertips, so if something like Maps wasn't available, it would seem more difficult and less accessible.
1: So if you, were,
0: you know, if you were mulling over whether to buy this phone or that phone, if one didn't come with Maps or YouTube, you'd
1: say... I would probably go for the other phone. How important do you think things like Google Maps, YouTube, all those applications are? And they're very, very important to be able to have access to them on your phone on the move. Mm. So if they didn't offer that, it would put me off using the phone completely.
0: The BBC's Simon Jack talking to shoppers in London. Huawei insists the US action is a temporary setback. It's stockpiled microchips and other essential parts. Its founder, Ren Zhangfei, told the US not to underestimate its resilience
2: maybe some of our lower end products on the periphery might easily be hurt they will be knocked out of the market sooner or later and we didn't do much preparation for this and some of these things might be affected but our most advanced products will not be affected at least our 5g technology won't be affected and not only will it not be affected but after two or three years no one will be able to catch up with it
0: but the long term implications could be severe for all sides. The UK based chip designer, ARM or ARM, is reported to have told staff to suspend business with Huawei because its designs contain US origin technology. Similar news came from Japan's Panasonic, and it might get worse. Last year, Huawei released a list of its core suppliers, and it included 33 US companies. So could this rising suspicion and severing of commercial ties result in the rise of two disconnected internets? Is this the beginning of a new tech cold war? I was joined by four guests who've been watching these developments from their unique points of view, and I think you'll find their insights as interesting as I did. Wendy Tang is a tech reporter based in Beijing. She was in our studio there. Rebecca Fannin is the founder and editor of Silicon Dragon News and author of the forthcoming book Tech Titans of China. She was in New York City. From Boston, I was joined by Brianna Wu, a software developer and cybersecurity expert and a Democratic candidate for Congress in the 2020 elections in the US. And from Stockholm, I was joined by Dominique Lazanski, an expert on internet governance and cybersecurity policy. And I began by a first question to all of the panel, starting with Wendy Tang. What's the single biggest danger of this dispute escalating?
3: I wasn't thinking so much about the danger of the escalation. I was thinking about who would hurt the most. I would actually think that the consumers would probably hurt the most in terms of limiting options of choosing products and as the earlier reports that you had there, saying that um, some consumers are not choosing a Huawei phone because it does not have Google Maps and YouTube's anymore, so I think in this sense, consumers are suffer the most.
0: Okay, consumers are a one element of this, Rebecca Fannin. What do you think could be the biggest danger of this dispute?
4: I think the biggest danger is that the tech world could separate into two distinct mutually exclusive technologically spheres, and that we'll have this digital iron curtain that will continue on. Uh, we already do see a separation of these two tech worlds where google facebook Twitter are blocked in China, and now the u s is blocking China products and china supplies so I think that this could escalate.
5: Brianna Wu? I agree with all of that. I just want to add, worst case scenario, not only do we have balkanization of the internet, but we see um, right now eight out of 10 of the most valuable companies in America are tech companies. And if we have a full out, cold technology war, we could see America's economy seriously be damaged. And China could develop their own operating system, which could take over a large part of the market. So this is a very serious situation. Dominique Lizansky,
0: quite a lot to worry about already. What, what would you like to add to that?
2: <laughs> yeah, just adding to that, I agree. I think um, the, the concern is the lack of competition and the, and the lack of sort of diversity of the tech ecosystem that adds to, uh, you know, adds to a lot of competition, adds to innovation, and as noted, is already starting to balkanize. Well, let's unpack all of those ideas, I hope, during the course of this programme. But
0: first, let's consider America's place in the tech world. Many people say the short answer to that is that until now, it would be described as dominant. But is that changing? Rebecca Fannin? Well, I think we have seen Silicon
4: Valley really lead in world technology, uh, game-changing technologies, and that has been the case for many, many years now. And now we have China's rise, and it is threatening the U.S. and its leadership. So if you go down the list of many of the leading technology companies, they're all in the U.S., Microsoft, Google, Salesforce, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, and so forth and so on. And uh, they are used globally, maybe not so much in China, but globally. And I think Silicon Valley has been the heart of venture capital, and is- has been the dominant venture capital investor, not only in the
0: U.S., but globally and into China, too. So
4: China and the U.S. have been intertwined
0: for many years. Brianna Wu, what do you think it is about Silicon Valley that has allowed this this dominance, this innovation, this flowering of technology?
5: Well, I think it's many things. You know, when I was in France a few years ago, I was brought downtown to see how they were basically trying to replicate Silicon Valley. I think it was that willingness to bring in people from all over the globe. If I could tell a quick story, this year for GDC, a lot of people. This is Game Developer Conference, where people all around the globe come and uh, network with other video game developers. We were having very serious conversations in our industry because so many people had been unable to get travel visas into the United States to go to a basic conference. Later that day, I was working around my district and I was talking to someone in biotech. They had a daughter that was graduating from high school here in Boston and their family from India was unable to get travel visas to come here to the United States to look at that. So what I think people don't understand is Silicon Valley and American tech dominance, we can't take that for granted. We have to protect that fiercely. And I think people don't understand just how much of a frustration many other countries are feeling right now.
0: Uh, And Wendy Tang, there is that sense of the way in which California has exported its ideas, those universities that have been such a big part of the development of Silicon Valley. Uh, And you get people like Jack Ma from Alibaba who studied in California.
3: Yeah, actually, the first wave of um, Chinese entrepreneurs, a lot of them have studied abroad and learned from universities in the U.S. or in Europe, and then they return to China to build their businesses empire. Uh, But we also seen some homegrown ones that just go to top university in China, such as uh, Peking University or Tsinghua University in Beijing that they graduated from top science programmes and then from there they start their own companies. And Dominic Lizansky if you think about why the US has dominated the
2: tech industry, what what would you look to? When I lived out there in the 90s and the 2000s and, and worked in Silicon Valley, it was absolutely about freedom of movement, people and immigrating, so much so that there was a uh, cricket league. I remember going and, and seeing with a number of friends that was primarily from people from India who had resettled for a short period of time in California. But also, I think it's been mentioned that access to venture capital and as well as academia. And research uh, like Stanford and Berkeley. But also, I I think there was sort of like a free sort of feeling, you know, there was the proximity to Washington, DC isn't that close. So the sort of the politics and the regulation and and the policy just wasn't quite there yet. And so there was a bit more freedom of of movement and freedom of innovation out there when I was there.
0: It's interesting that you you bring up that distance between Washington and California. Do you think that the US government actually ever got involved that it actually was active in trying to promote this this ecosystem or, or did it happen spontaneously
2: You know, under President Clinton, a decision was taken by him and and by his administration to really let the Internet flourish and to be to have less regulation and and not to put strict regulatory policies on it in the 90s. And absolutely, that encouraged the growth of Silicon Valley in many, many ways. The sort of hands on approach that he took, the approach that he had and that his administration had was absolutely essential. Brianna, would,
5: would you agree with that? I would agree that that helped in the '90s. I would just also note that we have a lot of what I would call social debt left over from that decision. You know, in the Clinton administration, we got rid of the uh, the federal office that of evaluates technology for federal agencies. That was gone, and you know now we're looking at 2019 where every state has their own election system. You know, like we have a huge cybersecurity crisis. So, you know, I realize it's simplest for everyone involved if there is no regulation. Involved with that, but we are certainly all paying the price for that decision today. I would also add what I am hearing as someone running for Congress that talks to people at work at Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, literally every single day is they want closer ties to Washington to help start making better decisions. So I just want to be careful and say that's not all good, like a lack of um, involvement in the tech industry. So we've talked about this extraordinary ecosystem that existed in
0: Silicon Valley and the development that, that has followed that. Nevertheless, we know that these deep suspicions now exist between Washington and Beijing about Beijing's motives and so on. Let's hear from Chuck Schumer. He's a senior Democrat in the Senate. He welcomed the Trump administration's restrictions on Chinese tech.
1: Huawei and other Chinese telecom companies pose a national threat to the security of the United States. Their technology could allow China to spy on Americans, steal their data and otherwise conduct espionage. But it's also, there's another point. China has taken advantage of us. There's a huge consensus now in America that that has happened. And one of the main ways they take advantage is they don't let our companies that have top-line products sell them in China, except under restrictions that make it almost impossible for them to do it. Our major tech companies are excluded from China. But China, at the same time, can sell anything it wants here.
0: Wendy Tang, a number of accusations there. But how is that perception of China, its role in the tech world, perceived in China, that view that there is in America?
3: I would say that America also spy on their own citizens. That revelation that came out a few years ago by Edward Snowden, that they were using their own technology to survey not only their citizens, but also their enemies as well. So That hasn't been discussed much in this debate of China spying on, um, you mean using their technology, spying on others. And Um, and is there a sense of pride in companies like Huawei? There is, absolutely. Huawei is a national pride here in China because it is one of the first Chinese technology companies that have achieved international success in terms of selling their telecommunications equipment abroad. And also Huawei is currently the second largest smartphone makers in the world that they beat Apple become number two in the market just after Samsung. Which shows their
0: strength. So Rebecca Fannin, if you're thinking about uh, China and tech more broadly, where would you say that China is actually leading the way? China
4: is leading the way in anything to do with mobile the number of mobile internet users, the super apps that are so pervasive in China's society today, where you have an Uber-like mobile app that you can basically run your life off of. you pay by mobile, you book restaurants, you book theater, you get uh, deliveries. This super app uh, system is something that is been developed in China and now is being copied in other parts of the world. I think that this has been a trend that China is leading in business models now that are being copied in the West. For instance, WeChat as a messaging system and the whole privacy of groups within WeChat. This is something that Facebook has, you know, is taking uh, some lessons from. And for Xiaomi, the smartphone maker from China, Apple is now taking a lesson from the uh, revenue generation of mini-apps and paid subscription services on Xiaomi phones and really baking that into the system much more than it had in the past. And so So, we are seeing a number of these business models being copied, which was not the case about 10 years ago, where China was copying the Western models.
0: So Brianna Wu, moving away from that stereotype of being an imitator, instead becoming an innovator, But how has China got there? Do you actually support the idea or agree with the idea that perhaps some of this is just simply by by stealing ideas, stealing IP, stealing top secret research that's been done in the West?
5: I think that's such a great question. And I I feel like I have somewhat of a unique perspective on this. You know, I'm a, a, a white, like natively born American, and I married into a family where my father in law immigrated here from China, and my husband is American born Chinese. So what I've seen there is that there's a real disconnect between what I think many Americans think and what people who have spent time in China think, where there's a that pride with Huawei, there's a real sense that Americans can't compete on a fair playing field with Huawei. So we're kind of choosing to have government intervene. I want to come back, though, to something you were talking about with that Chuck Schumer clip and him basically accusing uh, Huawei of having the capacity to spy on the United States. I think Americans forget the FBI literally just two years ago tried to bring a case against Apple to force a back door into the iPhone. It was with the terrorism case when the mass shooting and the FBI actually wanted to mandate that they would have permission to go into anyone's phone, to reverse engineer it, to read every message, to read everything on that phone, breaking the encryption. So I just want to point out that what we are accusing China of possibly doing, America is absolutely trying to do. But
0: Dominique Lisansky, is there a difference between our spies and absolutely. their spies,
2: which is how Washington would perhaps categorize it? Thank <laughs> you. Absolutely, the U.S. and you know I'm in the U.K. and I've been there for about 15 years. The, you know they have a rule of law and they have warrants. The, you know we we're in a post-Snowden age, but we've moved well beyond Snowden. To that comment, we're not turning, you know, about two million people of ethnic minorities in either the U.K. and the U.S. by using tracking and surveillance systems like China. There's just a difference of approach in terms of what technology should be used for and how it's developed between China and the US. And I think the difference is coming back to it, that there is a rule of law and there's ways and due process in the UK, in Europe and in in the US that just does not exist in China.
0: If you think about the internal kind of dynamics of China's tech industry, how does it differ then from what goes on in the US? After all, China is a country that has a strong centralised state. To what extent is the government directing investment and development? Wendy Tang.
3: In China, the government has a lot of power in terms of how they can help a company or industry to grow and flourish, as well as um, stifling an industry. An example would be in 2018, the world's largest gaming company, Tencent, they were suffered from not being able to publish computer games into the markets because the government would not allow them to do so. There was basically a freeze of approving games into the market. So besides Tencent, another Chinese company called NetEase was also suffering from that. So this showed an example of um, how much power China has over the fate of their companies. And I
4: think I would like to add that the Chinese government is very much involved in pushing China's edge in innovation uh, with programs such as the Made in China 2025 to close the gap in technology leadership and make Chinese firms into globally competitive tech champions. And the program about Internet Plus. And beyond that, Uh, there's the state-led China New Era Technology
0: Fund. Okay, so a couple of questions. And I'm not sure who's best placed to answer this, Wendy, possibly you. I have a vision of a tech company in California. I've been to see a few, you know, uh, sort of cool office, ping-pong table, young kids, (laughs) you know, who are all there, a bit (laughs) geeky,
3: lots of computers, what does a tech startup look like in China? I would say the scene is pretty similar. There are also a lot of co-working spaces in major technology hubs in China, such as Beijing, Hangzhou, um, Shenzhen. And also more established technology firms have their own campuses in different parts of Beijing. I've been to one company that uh, it has a slide in the office that I can mm-hmm. slip down from like the second floor down to the first <laughs> floor. Oh, well, so it's I, also a fun environment too. And it's the
0: same glamour and money attached to tech in China as
3: it is in the West? I think so. It's just because, as Rebecca mentioned earlier, the governments really push on innovations and entrepreneurship. It's even one of the policies that that says everyone is an entrepreneur, and creativity of the masses. And China has always been a very entrepreneurial country Mm -hmm. and focused on technology and science. As we may recall that the four inventions back then was uh, invented by China. So I think the government really wants to get the country back on track in terms of entrepreneurship and innovation but, scientific development. But,
4: uh, I, I I agree I with Wendy. Yeah. Uh, Brionic.
5: Brionic. Yeah, I have a little bit of a different opinion on that. Uh, we were mentioning Tencent a bit ago. One of the things that happens is Tencent has recently taken huge financial stakes in the video game industry. If I'm recalling correctly, have a majority stake in Unreal Engine which has been the primary engine with which games have been developed since the 1990s. And they often take stakes in uh, studios, particularly mobile publishers. What I have personally seen is there's a huge cultural clash that does happen when you know these smaller game studios, these American game studios, are trying to work with companies like Tencent. There's a, there's a cultural feeling of... Something we do in the game industry lives, we'll build a prototype, we'll bring in play testers, we'll let people try to experience that. And you'll have American developers that are then going to Tencent. It's very hierarchical, and then they have huge meetings of people to, like, give a decision. So I would say there's really a – especially a management-style difference between those two countries, and I I also think that fosters in tech policy.
0: I want to throw in one other geopolitical, if you like, idea – if we're saying that China can innovate and is has these huge tech companies, will that innovation potentially be stifled under the leadership of a government that is much more centralising, that is much more controlling and perhaps has drawn back from some of the openness that China enjoyed, say, 10 years ago, Rebecca Fannin?
4: well i think we've seen the rise of china's bot and that would be baidu alibaba and tencent and these companies have are the comparables to facebook amazon google that we have in in the west in the us and i think you can't argue that baidu alibaba and tencent have been incredibly innovative
2: dominique lizanski yeah and i would i would agree with that they have been innovative but also you know some decisions are being made by the centralized Communist Committee and things. There is a different approach. And I think I think there has been a, a lessening of a more centralised approach. But yeah, the government is still very much involved in, in taking some decisions, for example, for international aspects of those companies as well.
0: And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, looking at tensions in global tech. Are the US and China on the brink of a tech cold war? Each week, we tackle a different topic, and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. There are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, La Shah, looking at tensions over tech between the US and China. The US decision to blacklist the Chinese firm Huawei has seen Google and other US tech companies restrict their trading activities with Huawei. So what are the consequences of this decision beyond the absence of, say, Google Maps and other apps from a Huawei handset manufactured in the future? Well, to discuss all this, we're joined by Wendy Tang, a tech reporter based in Beijing. Rebecca. Kefanin, founder and editor of Silicon Dragon News and author of the coming book Tech Titans of China. Brianna Wu is a software developer, cybersecurity expert and a Democratic candidate for Congress in 2020. And Dominique Lazansky is an expert on internet governance and cybersecurity policy. Welcome back to you all. Earlier in the programme, we looked at the tech connections between the US and China. Let's talk a bit more about the global implications for all of us as consumers and indeed also for alliances and relations between countries as these tensions ratchet up. Will we as consumers begin to notice a difference if global tech ties unravel? Dominique Lozanski
2: you're seeing in Europe, at least, you know, a diversification of Huawei being sold side by side with quite a lot of other handsets from China, but also, you know, Samsung and Apple. And I think the consumers in Europe will be hit quite hard by that if things continue to go the way that they go. Um, also, don't forget Arm, which is a UK-based company that designs microchips, actually, is also currently suspending relationship with Huawei pending the issue in the US that just happened. So I think you'll start to see the knock on effect effect of that. Rebecca Fannin, do you think consumers will start to notice a difference in the US?
4: Yes, I think we will. And with pricing and with the range of innovative products,
0: we will see this happening. Dominique Lizansky, what what aspect of our tech experience might we see changing the most?
2: I think, you know, it's consumer choice, honestly. Like I was saying here, um, Huawei has stores in a lot of countries in Eastern Europe. I was uh, in Prague recently, and, and there's a shop there. And so, you know, a handset like Apple or Samsung is much more expensive than a Huawei handset. And I think the the ability and the choice to have those options will go away. But then again, don't forget, if Google continues to not give the license for Android to allow YouTube and other things to take place, I mean, you'll just see people choosing the same handset and not choosing Huawei.
0: Wendy Tang, presumably in, in China, there would be the most marked difference, perhaps.
3: Well, actually, with this Google not working with Huawei, it doesn't affect consumers in China so much because Huawei users don't get access to google play store so for chinese users using huawei handsets they already use an open source version of android that is more chinese focused that is not quite the same as consumer outside of china
0: so not an obvious difference but what about in the future if if you
3: don't have access
0: to the best chip technology and stuff which many people argue even if china is catching up it will take some time before it can reproduce that technology in the same way
3: Yeah, I think in the long term, that would definitely hurt the Chinese companies. And at the same time, I think for the industry overall, it's hurting the industry to progress because the best way to compete is actually have all the best players out in the level playing field to compete their tech with each other and see who's better and keep on innovating. So with political restrictions, that is going to stifle some of the players out there.
0: Brianna Wu, competition clearly has been important to innovation, but as these walls go up, will the experience of tech then really depend on where we live and which relationships which countries have? So if you're in Africa, say, where there is a big Chinese presence, will your experience of tech perhaps be rather different than if you're in Europe or the
5: United States? I think that's such a great question because that really nails the central problem here. I would argue the stakes here are so much higher than consumer choice or paying a few dollars more for a phone because you had to have the chip fabbed somewhere else. We are really talking about playing a high stakes game with the United States tech economy. One of the stories that came out this week is Huawei came forward and said, look, we can have our own operating system up, ready to go in an entire year. So I want for your listeners to think about what happens if you have an operating system used by basically half of the world, and that's not something we're saying the standards on. Intellectual property is not necessarily going to be honored in the exact same way. You're not going to have a culture that prioritizes key technologies like dual-key encryption so you know your things aren't being listened on by anyone. This could seriously affect Everyone, chip makers, software developers, people trying to sell software, even government agencies just trying to have a private conversation. So the stakes here could not be higher.
0: Rebecca Fannin, you could see this just as sour grapes on the part of of a Western world that's used to being supreme and is now being challenged. Or you could see it as really quite serious concerns about what we're up against.
4: Well, I do think we are seeing that the U.S. feels threatened in this case by China's rise and is pushing back. This is something that was not in the winds a few years ago and now is is being taken very seriously by Washington, D.C. and it's impacting the development of innovation worldwide.
0: Dominic Lozanski,
2: what do you see as the
0: implications of
2: this? So I think you'll see the more Balkanization of the um, of the internet, of course, of using different types of operating systems, I also think the other thing that was briefly mentioned was connectivity in developing and underdeveloped countries. I mean I think you'll start to see a bit more competition in terms of different players trying to get in and, and sell their handsets and sell connectivity and you know deploy 5G across those particular countries as well. And I think you might see a slowing down of that, which is quite concerning considering there's still about 4 billion people that aren't connected or online to any ability. And could tech actually change values?
0: Because if you think about how Chinese technology, for instance, this is an example, is being applied by governments across countries. So AI technology, which can be used for perfectly innocent reasons to keep the peace, but can also become a much more intrusive surveillance technology. It's being provided by the Chinese. Will that be set in, if you like, a Chinese context where actually surveillance state is part and parcel of the way China works. Are you exporting the idea
5: as well as the technology? Brianna. I think that's exactly right. There is definitely a a different paradigm, especially when it comes to AI, machine learning, deep learning. A story that came out in the Wall Street Journal this year was talking about the militarization of AI as far as probing cyber defenses here in the United States and basically training artificial intelligence to spend all day, every day trying to hack systems. So you're talking about fundamental cultural difference in how these technologies could apply. So it affects everything in the technology sector, everything from, you know, a company trying to protect their intellectual property to the, the way you might interface with the product to even the revenue models by which you bring in information. So it's something we should take very seriously. Does anybody else then worry about this,
0: if you like, a clash of values and how that's going to determine, drive the way in which different countries adopt technology? Is there a danger that you widen the divides rather than bring together countries, Wendy Tang?
3: It's hard to say if there's like a danger about the different values, because I don't think in China there's much choices. For consumers to say, I don't want my face to be scanned by something. So facial recognition is just getting more and more popular. Like I've seen in supermarkets that instead of using my phone to pay, I can just use my face to authenticate my identity and then to approve a payment. I've seen that it's been applied. And I'm not sure how consumers here feel about it. Like I've seen some people will use it just like fun and innovative. But there are also people out there who are more aware of this privacy concern. And if there's anything that the consumers here can do anything about it, it's just not sure. I'm just take a, a step back and go back to the sort of the national
0: stage. You have this situation where the US has made a conscious decision to block US firms from doing business with Huawei. But to what extent could this become a dividing issue between allies? The arrival of the Internet of Things means that devices in our homes will talk to each other and the wider world, and it will all be delivered over this 5G network. And this latest technology will also provide data for public services and, and other big projects, if you like. But the US government argues that we shouldn't rely on a Chinese company to deliver this future. And it wants its Five Eyes intelligence allies, that's the US, UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, to exclude Huawei from delivering 5G. So will these longstanding allies be forced to choose between relationships and tech providers? Nigel Inkster is a former British intelligence officer. He's now an advisor to the International Institute for Strategic Studies think tank here in London. What were his specific concerns about Chinese technology?
1: I think what's happened at the moment is, and this is certainly true in the United States, is that the debate is increasingly focusing on what are the risks in extreme situations. And I think there are three points that I would highlight here. Firstly, the US policy community generally was slow to wake up to the implications of 5G As something that is not an incremental improvement, but represents a step change. Secondly, some months ago, the Australian intelligence community undertook an exercise looking at the potential vulnerabilities that Australia might face with 5G in a kind of extreme situation, some kind of confrontational relationship with China. And the conclusions that they reached in that situation were this would be very problematic because of the enormously greater attack surface that 5G presented. And thirdly, and I think this is a relatively new phenomenon. I'm getting the impression, I don't know, but I'm interpreting the evidence that you know, the Pentagon, the U.S. military have been thinking about the implications of operating and fighting in what one might term a dirty Uh, communications environment, i.e. one that was susceptible to disruption and interference by a hostile power, and have concluded that this is not tenable. This is not something that they can contemplate doing.
0: But you can't contemplate doing it. But does that mean the answer is to simply shut it out to say we won't have Huawei or any Chinese company involved in our tech?
1: Well, I mean you that is a simp- that is a simplistic solution, but I don't think it represents a long term approach and it, and it does have significant downsides. Firstly, if you resolutely exclude Huawei from these uh, networks, then you risk a kind of global bifurcation of communications technology standards. I don't think you can uh, hope to exclude Huawei from large parts of the world where like it or not, the US military might have to operate. And also, of course, by excluding Huawei, you in the short term, provide China with enormous incentives to crash the gears to develop their own capabilities and solutions where at the moment they are depending on the United States inputs.
0: Isn't there a risk, if you look at something like the Five Eyes Alliance, that you actually divide countries? So in that alliance, you've got the United States, the UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. The UK has toyed with the idea of allowing Huawei into some of its 5G structures. Do you end up dividing alliances like that? Could it pose? Could these differences of opinion, differences of approach actually prove to be a, a geostrategic threat in an unexpected way, perhaps?
1: Well, I think that China would like to break up the Five Eyes relationship because China is inherently opposed to any kind of alliance relationship which could be directed uh, against China. I mean, my guess, and it is only a guess, is that if it comes to a political decision, I, I would assume that uh, probably the Five Eyes community would stick to America but that would uh, carry with it uh, significant costs.
0: But an audience listening to this programme around the world might point the finger and say... Well, hang on a minute. There's plenty of evidence now to suggest that Silicon Valley often has motives Mm. that uh, are are less than honourable, that have been shown to be uh, undermining Western principles and Western values. Who should we trust?
1: Well, I think it's a very good question. And the problem is that this is a technology that has evolved very rapidly and has created facts on the ground before it's possible to have an informed public debate. A good example is the issue with Amazon and the sale of facial recognition technology to law enforcement services. I agree with Amazon that you can't stop the evolution of technology because it might be applied for malign purposes. But I think in some areas, there is a need to press the pause button until an informed public debate can be had. And I think there is starting to be a climate of opinion within Washington uh, and more generally that uh, shares this view.
0: That's former British intelligence officer Nigel Inkster. Dominique Lizansky do you think countries will end up choosing their technology based on their strategic interests?
2: I think that's in part true. That's what the U.S. has done. But I think there's also another issue, another layer to this, while I agree with what's just been said. There's very little equipment, Huawei equipment right now in the the core networks in the U.S. And that's because of a longstanding issue back in 2012, discussions about Chinese involvement in technology in the U.S., but also because of different choices of investment by network operators. In the UK in particular, where the National Cybersecurity Center has been discussing this, and there is Huawei equipment in some of the core networks that BT and Vodafone operate, um, it's a slightly different story. There is also a testing facility that Huawei's equipment and software is tested as well in the UK. And so there's a difference of opinion, a difference of investment, and a difference of sort of approach from that. Now, that being said, I still think that the Five Eyes are going to discuss this. While they don't agree at the moment, there's ongoing discussions from what we see in the media. And I think there'll be sort of different solutions, depending on the different approaches.
0: Rebecca Fannin, from from your experience of of travelling between the US and China, which countries might move under the influence of China, do you think?
4: Well, I think one of the reasons that this has come to the fore is that the US Defence Department has uh, done some studies on China venture investment and China tech investment into U.S. frontier technologies and has become alarmed by the volume and the focus on our U.S. frontier technology companies. And so this is one of the reasons
0: it's become an issue. And I think we're just at the beginning of this, actually. Brianna Wu, do you think when people sit in Washington, they look around the world and think, gosh, there's parts of Africa now which will undoubtedly look to China for technology and for ideas.
5: Absolutely. And, you know, if those standards are not adopted, it's obviously a big threat to the United States and our ability to reach decision advantage. Uh, if you have different kinds of software out there using different paradigms, you know, it really opens up the, the door to a lot of different things. It also means that, like, our economy, we won't be able to necessarily put products in those markets if we're not developing things on that operating system. So I think what is just unbelievably critical to keep in mind is, you know, with all of these accusations aimed at Huawei about spyware being present in their devices, the public has not seen any proof of that cybersecurity experts have not seen any proof of that. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily exist. And our intelligence agencies can't necessarily reveal sources and methods. So maybe they know something that the public does not. But the truth is, these are some very, very hot accusations without a lot of evidence to back it up. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Uh,
0: Wendy Tang, your moment in a way to to push back plenty of evidence in a way about what Silicon Valley has been up to. Can we trust America
3: any more than we can trust China? I think that we were about to find out, as we mentioned about this technological world's balkanizing. I just want to point out that I think in China, sometimes you may even feel that um, the government's more transparent about what they want from tech companies. And, for instance, they would tell the companies that, oh, your data need to be stored on the local servers, or if there is crime involved, that the companies need to review um, information. So those rules are pretty clear. But in the West, we're just not so sure if the rules are also as transparent. There might be some back deals going on that the public just don't know about it. And one example would probably be Facebook with the Cambridge Analytica scandal last year that I think the public just be more aware of how their data are being used by these companies.
0: Dominique Lisansky, could all this backfire for the United States in the sense that you level accusations, which perhaps there is stuff out there that we we simply don't know about, it's not in the public domain, but actually you end up alienating people? Is it better to keep your enemies, such as they are, close and actually manage them from within? I just
2: want to make a comment about the accusations. Um, in, in the UK, the, there's an annual report that comes out discussing the Huawei research laboratory and what they found. And the biggest issue that they have isn't spyware necessarily or anything like that. It has to do with the integrity of the software that Huawei uses. And that's one of the reasons why they're highly concerned. The public report demonstrates that. What do you mean um, by that? So just ex- little... explain that a little bit more. So the software isn't sound, I guess, is the best way to describe it. The way that the software works on the equipment, according to the report that's come out and to the research that they've done in the UK with Huawei, by the way, is that it gets forked or divided depending on the client that Huawei delivers. And there's no way to actually update the software consistently. So it's a um, a standards issue, essentially. It's standards, but it's also integrity and quality of programming as well. And Rebecca, can I I please add on to that
5: for just a second? I want to say if the standard uh, for a company being uh, scrutinized for cybersecurity and possibly not being allowed to uh, work with companies in this country is their software isn't well written from a cybersecurity point of view, there are a lot of companies that are going to be going out of business. There is plenty of blame to go around on that front, and I don't think that's a very fair standard to apply simply to Huawei.
2: Rebecca Thunnen. Well, I think you should, I do think, sorry, I think yeah. you should take a look at the report. Honestly, it's a little more detailed than that, but also maybe those companies should get out of business. Rebecca yeah. <laughs> I
4: Yeah, I would like to add mm-hmm. that there's an argument to be made that if a country does shut out Huawei, it could lose a competitive advantage and an innovative edge. And so, particularly with the rollout of 5G. So Huawei is spent a lot of money, a lot of research and development money into many universities in the UK and Canada. So if a country excludes Huawei, this could backfire.
0: At the beginning of this, I posed this as a sort of a potentially a new Cold War, but actually is a better comparison with the space race, the idea that you have these two global superpowers that are trying to outdo each other. But rather than just states being involved, there are also companies too. I wonder if that's a better characterization, Brianna Wu.
5: No, I think the space race was more like one country doing its own thing and another one both competing for the same goal. Here, I think it's two different, it's a clash of cultures, basically, with very different goals, very different approaches, very different levels of comfort regarding privacy and, you know, cybersecurity. And it's kind of a zero-sum game, right? Like if one wins, another one loses. So I think the Cold War is probably the best analogy here.
0: But in which case, though, Wendy Tang, could 5G tip the balance of power? Because, for example, Huawei owns about 10% of essential 5G patents. Does that matter?
3: I think it does. And I think it's still too early to tell who is having a lead in this 5G race. And plus, there are other players out there, too. But we should just wait and see.
0: No obvious answer there. What do you think, Rebecca Fannin?
3: Well, Huawei certainly
4: has an advantage in innovation. And uh, Huawei is the number one patent uh, filer for you know, new innovations. It's number one in the world. It's number one in R&D spending. So you cannot argue with Huawei's strength.
0: I think we've all agreed that there are massive ties. There is a huge exchange of information and ideas. So is there really only a negative outcome from what we're seeing happening in the last few weeks and days and these the way in which this rivalry is potentially building walls? Dominique Lozanski.
2: I think I'm fairly optimistic. You have Nokia and Ericsson, of course, and 5G. You have Huawei and you have others. I think one of the good outcomes of this is that this discussion is happening now on a global level. For years, I've seen China and Russia and allies on the West, you know, the two different groups of of ideological differences, I guess, with technology argue and debate in the UN and international organizations, but no one took notice of it. And now I think we're having a bigger debate. And bigger decision on what kind of technology and what kind of ideology do we want for the internet and connectivity of the future? Do we want a centralised one like like China has, or do we want something that's a little more decentralised like we have in the West? Wendy Tang, do you take heart from the
0: conversation or is, in a sense, is the only way down from here because you're not going to have the cooperation levels that we've enjoyed in the past, perhaps?
3: Sometimes when we talk about technology innovation, it's not really comparing about the tech. Sometimes it's actually talking about politics, and cultural differences and values. And once all these different factors are involved talking about technology, it's just become a really complicated subject. And ideally, I would like to see a world that companies, regardless of their origin, they would be working together using technology to solve world pressing issues instead of just competing with one another. But unfortunately, that's not really what the real world is happening right now. Rebecca
0: Fannin, what would be the positive thing that you would try to draw from what is clearly an escalating row?
4: Well, it's hard to find the positive uh, right now, but the U.S. could backtrack. There could be a pause in this. I think emotions are so high right now that um, you know, maybe a pause
0: would be a good idea. Brianna have Wu, we, have we passed the peak of cooperation? Is it
5: downhill from here? Oh, goodness, no. I I don't think so at all. I think there's really been a cultural moment, right? Like, I'm I'm a software engineer, and I'm running for United States Congress. And what I'm seeing is a lot of support – for people from our industry getting involved with government policy. A great example, last year, Microsoft, Microsoft's legal blog came forward, and they took a very hard stand against the NSA stockpiling uh, zero-day vulnerabilities, basically the ability to hack into systems and kind of uh, exploit something without telling people about it. We are seeing a kind of um, renaissance, almost, from people in the tech industry that – If we don't take action, if we don't get involved with policy, if we're not proactive and have more of a say about how the things we build and the things we love are used, that we're not going to be comfortable with the outcome. So I think it's concerning right now, but I also think we're having a conversation that is fundamentally going to right this ship.
0: And on that positive note, I'm going to bring this conversation to a close. Uh, Brianna Wu, Dominic Lazansky, Rebecca Fannin, Wendy Tang, thank you all very much. From me and the whole team, that's the real story for this week. Thank you for listening.